0: For everyone else here, I invite you to open a Bible, if you have one, uh, to the book of Joel as we look at the last message in this series on the day of the Lord today. Joel chapter 3, if uh, uh, you find uh, the book of Psalms, make your way back, you're going to run into some larger books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, then you'll come to some smaller ones, Daniel, Hosea, Joel will be shortly after, and so Joel chapter 3 is where we'll be looking today, and uh, as we're looking in Joel chapter 3, we will also be looking in the book of Revelation at a number of passages there, so you can uh, have fingers uh, when we get to the Revelation point. I'll instruct you where those are at, and you can keep your finger in Joel, because we'll hop back and forth a couple times, but as we look at this message this morning on the end of the story from Joel. Chapter 3. Sermon notes are uh, simple, uh, but a way for you to follow along and write extra notes if you're a note taker. They're in your bulletin. Uh, so, Steph, when um, she's reading a book or we're watching a TV show, um, especially one that's already been um, produced and we're in the midst of catching up on something, when she's in the midst of a story or the midst of a show or the midst of a movie that is intense she will oftentimes go to the end of the story and read the last few pages to see. And if she's watching a movie or a show and it's just too intense, she'll look up the episode guide or the summation of the movie and she'll read it and see how it goes because she wants to know the end of the story. How in the midst of all the tension, how in the midst of all the conflict, everything that's going on, how does it end? Does it turn out all right? And if she understands where it's going, it helps her in the midst of watching it to be like, okay, I don't know how at all the twists and turns are going to go, and the intensity of it is really there, but I know how the story ends. Knowing the end gives the promise that whatever is current in the story, that it's going to be resolved. And that is true when we are studying and looking at the book of Joel and when we under are looking at the, the last days and the day of the Lord, that when we understand the end of the story, when we understand that God promises to make all that is wrong for his people right, and that when he promises to deal with everything that is evil and those who, are do, who do it both justly and completely it gives us great hope. It gives us great encouragement in the midst of everything that is going on. We see it evidenced by what he promises to do for Israel, and we will see it that it's promised that he is going to take care of his people, the church as well. No matter what is happening in the world currently, we don't have to fear. We don't have to get anxious because God promises that no matter how intense the reality of the story playing out gets, he promises that the story ends well. Knowing the end of the story helps us in the midst of it when things are dark, when things are difficult, when things are challenging. Because he tells us what he's going to do, and our God is a God who always, unlike me and unlike you, (laughs) he always does what he says he's going to do. The promises fulfilled have showed that, and the promises that are yet to be, we have confidence because it's who he is. He's a promise maker and a promise keeper that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Two key promises that we see embedded in Joel chapter 3. And uh, we'll, we'll look at the end of the story in Revelation as well. Two key promises. The first key promise is this, that God promises to judge evil. God promises To judge evil in Joel chapter three verses one through sixteen. Before we work our way through that section, just as a backdrop, as as a reminder, you may know this, or this may be stuff that you are in the midst of learning. That all the way back there was a man by the name of Abram, who God eventually changed his name to Abraham, and God made promises to Abraham. That he would bless him and he would make him a great nation. He would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. That he would bless him and create a nation from him. And that from him, all nations would be blessed. He had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who had 12 sons, who eventually became the nation, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, who God used as a light for the world, a light for the Gentiles. And from the people of Israel, from Abraham's descendants, came King David and ultimately became Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah the Savior of the world, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, who is the Savior of all, and the one who will make all things right. God promised to always be faithful to Israel, even in spite of their unfaithfulness. Just as I'm unfaithful and we're unfaithful, we're not perfect. We don't, do, we don't live up to our end of the bargain the way God has called us to, but his grace covers us. He pours out his grace like rain. He's faithful to his people. He's faithful to us, and he will be faithful. And so as we would look at the book of Joel, it focuses on the nation of Israel, the people of God, and how he will be faithful to them in fulfilling all of his promises that he has made. Throughout history... There's been a battle between good and evil, between God and Satan, and Israel often has been at the middle, in the middle of all of that. And Israel has done things that have not been good, and they've done things that have been faithful. It's a checkered story in the whole thing. But you see this pattern, though, of the people of God having the nations come against them because it is God's redemptive work through them. And so the nations come against. And so. As we look at this this morning, we will, we will see the way that God, in fulfilling his promises, comes to vindicate, to stand, and to redeem his people, Israel, and to judge the nations who come against them. God promises to do this. See, in verses 1 through 8, he says, In those days, at the end, and at the end of time, verse 1, When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will bring into judgment against them. I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel. For they, the nations that have come against Israel, have scattered my people among the nations, and they've divided up my land. They cast lots for my people They traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine that they might drink horrific things. Verse 4, Now what have you against me, O Tyre and Sion and all the regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your heads what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far from their homeland. See, I'm going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them, and I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, a nation far away. The Lord i spoken. This is intense stuff. But it is God coming to the defense of his chosen people. Coming to the ones that he has made the promises for. He promises to bring justice to the nations who have opposed his people who have opposed Judah, Jerusalem, Israel. And in verse 2 it says that he brings them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Again in uh, Later in the passage, he he says it again. I'm going to bring you to the valley of Jehoshaphat in verse 12. He says, Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations. Back to verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare the war for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I'm strong. Come quickly, all you nations, from every side and assemble there. Let them be roused. Bring them back. Verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. In these verses, God says that he is going to bring the nations to the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision. Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. So he is bringing them to a place for his judgment to be poured out. Now, Bible scholars do not know of a place that would specifically be called the valley of Jehoshaphat. And so there is a pretty wide consensus that what the Lord is talking about, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Decision, would be a place called the the Valley of Jezreel near the city of Megiddo. And there there have been, it's a, a 180 square mile valley in which battles, historic battles have been fought. And here in this place, the nations would come in this place near Megiddo in the valley of Jezreel to come to prepare to make war on God's people, Israel. If you would hold your finger there in the book of Joel and go to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, and turn to Revelation chapter 16. I want to show you some of these ways that Joel is seen in the book of Revelation, the end of the story, how Joel prophesies it, and we see it being prophesied, its outcome in the book of Revelation. As the Lord is bringing judgment, as the Lord is bringing wrath upon the nations, he is pouring out these plagues, these bowls of wrath, and he comes to seven plagues. And the sixth plague, if you look at verse 12 of chapter 16, it says this. Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. It says, the sixth angel poured out out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle. Listen, on the day... On the great day of God Almighty. Jesus interludes and he tells us to be ready. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Verse 15. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. In verse 16. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now Armageddon, there's been movies and all kinds of stuff and it has all of these apocalyptic kinds of things. But Armageddon simply means the hill... Or Mount of Megiddo. And so it's the place, the hill of the Mount of Megiddo above the Valley of Jezreel below where the nations will come. Where God, in pouring out these plagues, drives up the Euphrates River to allow for the nations to come to this Valley of Jezreel to assemble, to come to make war against God's people. Ultimately, who is bringing them? It is God. This is not the nation saying, hey, let's all conspire together and God's going, oh, no. God is fully at work, pouring out his wrath, pouring out the plagues to judge the people of the nations who have committed evil specifically against his people and against him. And he is bringing them to this place, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Decision. There, we see back in Joel chapter 3, verse 13, We see God bringing judgment. Let the nations be roused. Verse 12, let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. If you would read in Revelation chapter 14 from verse 14 through the end, it is very much reminiscent of this idea of, of the, the sickle, the angel swinging the sickle, and even the, one like the Son of Man swinging the sickle and, and the grapes being brought in and the wine press and, and running out as God's wrath is poured out, as justice is done in defense of his people. It's pretty... Intense stuff, isn't it? <laughs> Pretty graphic stuff. The Bible doesn't hold back on what is being talked about in the description of these things. The book of Joel, the, the focus is on Israel. And and so there there can be some question, and I'm not going to get into lots of stuff, but I just want to be able, um, because sometimes, and I know there's been people who have made questions or comments after messages and stuff like that. So I just want to address one quick thing. We're not going to get into it, and I'm not going to take a side one way or another, and that is that in the last days, that there is going to be a seven-year period called the Tribulation when the Antichrist will come, a man who Satan will possess to be able to do miraculous things, to deceive the nations, and to make war against the people of God. And in those seven years of the Tribulation, there are two views on this, of those seven years, that are, that are most prominent, at least these days. One is that at the beginning of the seven years, Jesus will come in a secretive rapture and will bring the church, God's people, the church, the Gentiles, out. He will, he will rapture them and they will be in heaven, the church will be in heaven for seven years. While all of these things, these things that we see pictured, the the wrath of God poured out, the bowls of wrath being poured out, that those things will be going on while the church is in heaven, not experiencing and on earth during the wrath of God. The other position says that believers, all people will be here for the entirety of those seven years, and that God will sustain, God will protect from the wrath of God but there will be a time of testing. There will be a time of great uh, uh, persecution against the believers of God. Now, here's, I just want to mention this because there are godly people, smart people, who believe both things. And in our movement in the Christian Missionary Alliance, we do not take a position on either one of those. We we let people they're kind of a, a big tent where we let different people have different views and we're not gonna say, you're right, you're wrong. But one thing that both groups absolutely one hundred percent believe, and this is what we believe that at the end of those seven years, at the end of those seven years, Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, he does, in verses 15 through 17, the sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble. But the Lord, the Lord will be a refuge for his people. A stronghold for the people of Israel. When the nations have come and the Lord has brought them together to make war against his people, it is at that moment that King Jesus will come and King Jesus will save and King Jesus will deliver and King Jesus will pour out judgment on all of the nations that have opposed his people. If you flip back to the book of Revelation, we see this pictured in Revelation chapter 19. I just want to read it because it should bring great hope to us. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. For John, writing in the midst of Roman rule, the white horse the Romans had as a sign of victory. And so they would have, the readers of of John's day who are are reading the book of Revelation or hearing it, they would hear this rider of the white horse as a rider coming in victory. Not coming before the battle, he knows he's coming before the battle is even fought. He's not coming going, okay, we hope this is going to go well. (laughs) He comes on the white horse, he comes in victory, not hoping for victory. Not the battle is kind of, well, which way is this one going to go? He comes already in victory. Whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding the white horse, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written King of kings and Lord of lords. Who is that? Well, we can say it a little bit more excited than that. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus. The people of God should be able to identify who that is. The word of God. The king of kings and the Lord of lords who comes in victory because he's already won it at the cross and he comes to enforce it and he comes to vindicate his people He comes, he comes to judge evil. And all the while, verse 16, the Lord will be a refuge for his people. (laughs) The Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. He promised he's going to do it. He promised he's going to be faithful. He made covenant with Abraham, not with just, hey, Abraham, you do this, and if you fail, we're off. He made covenant with Abraham. God made it with himself on behalf of Abraham. So that no matter what God's people did, no matter what we've done, and that's what Jesus has done as a cross, he stands for us. He stands for us so that no matter how well we do, or how poorly we do, he stands for us. We are in his hands. We are in his stronghold. We are in his care. He is our refuge. He's promised he's going to do it, and he will fulfill it. The end of the story shows it. The end of the story shows it. So take heart. (laughs) You see the world going crazy. You wonder what's going on. Take heart. There is no reason to fear. There is no reason to be anxious because our God is a promise maker and he has told us and he will. He will judge evil, he will make all things right. That's who he is. That's who he is. You know, I I see this. We don't, you know, sometimes we look at culture and, like, oh, culture is all bad. (laughs) We have pictures in culture that culture gets it because it's embedded in us, in, in humanity, as people made in the image of God. Some, it gets all distorted and messed up sometimes. But at the core, you can see it in humanity because we're image bearers of God, that we get it, that there is wrong, and we know it's going to work out right. How many movies have you seen, superhero movies, all the Supermans, all the Batmans, all the Spiderman's, if you're a Star Wars person, you see this battle between good and evil. And you see this longing for everything that is wrong to be made right, don't you? And every time, there's a hero. The human condition knows that in the midst of everything that's broken, even if Jesus isn't the one, we know at our core that we need a hero. (laughs) We need a deliverer. We need someone to rescue us. We need someone to make it right. And whether we make it Spider-Man or Batman or Superman or Luke Skywalker, it speaks to the fact that we know we need a hero. And that hero is King Jesus. God promises. He promises to judge evil. And he's going to do it through his Son, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, Jesus the Christ. He promises also that when he judges evil, that he's going to restore all things. He's going to restore all things. Look at back in Joel, and then we'll finish up just looking at a, a few verses in the book of Revelation. In Joel chapter 3, verses 17 through the end of the chapter, when this happens, Then you will know, verse 17, then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. It will be set apart. There will be righteousness in it. The dwelling of God will be in Jerusalem again. Never again will foreigners invade her. Never again will this be contested ground. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. Pay attention to this. We'll see this in a moment. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate. Edom, a desert waste because of the violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever. And Jerusalem, through all generations, their blood guilt, which I have not pardoned, I will pardon. Isn't that good news? What has not yet been pardoned, I will pardon. Why? Because the Lord is a promise maker and every time he promises, he always does what he says he's going to do. We see this pictured then in the book of Revelation. If you turn, you can take your finger out of Joel for this last time and go to the book of Revelation last in verse 20. Following Jesus coming in verse 19, the rider on the white horse. Verse 20 says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore." more until the thousand years were ended. After that time, he must be set free for a short time. Jesus comes, and as you will then see in verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years, The rest of the dead did not come to life until after the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, for they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When Jesus comes and he pours out the wrath of God upon the nations who have come against the people of God, He will rule and reign. Satan will be bound and thrown into the abyss for a thousand years, not to influence or to lead astray the nations. And for a thousand years, King Jesus, with the people of God, will rule and reign on the earth. It's what we believe. Whether you believe Jesus comes in the rapture for the church at the beginning of the seven years or at the end, everybody is settled on this thing. When Jesus comes back, the people of God will come with him and people of God will reign with him for a thousand years. Then those prophecies like Isaiah says, and the lion will lay down with the lamb and a a young child will put his hand in a scorpion's hole and all that, won't be bit, all that kind of stuff. That's what's going to happen in a thousand years. Everything that was wrong here on this earth for a thousand years will be right. Because Jesus, Jesus is ruling. And his people rule with him. Sometimes I think, that almost seems too good to be true. You ever feel like that? If you think, if you've studied this before and you think about everything being made right and everything under the rule and reign of Jesus and all the you know, lions and laying down with lambs and children and all these, like man, it seems too good to be true. But it's not. It's not too good to be true. It's what God said is going to happen. It's what we can hold on to the truth that will happen. At the end of that time, at the end of a thousand years, Satan will be released. He'll gather all the nations one last time. And they'll make war, but it will be a quick one. And Satan will be thrown into hell forever. All those who've trusted Jesus We'll be with the Lord forever. There is a sobering reality in this too. And it should grieve us. This whole thing of judgment, sometimes it's like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. But it should grieve us also too because there are many, many whose names will not be found as Revelation 20 tells us in the book of life who will be in hell forever. A very, very real place. Conscious eternal punishment and torment. It's one of our, one of our motivations for mission is because we, we don't want many, many people to be there. The Lord says he's not slow in keeping his promises in 2 Peter 3 because he desires for all to come and he's holding off. And we have a role to play in this. That people would come to know Jesus in the midst of it. But God has promised that this is what He's going to do. And then in Revelation 21 to 22, a new heaven and a new earth, the Lord does this work of renewing, of restoring all of these things. And the holy city, of the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven like a bride prepared for her husband. And the city of God. And God himself dwells on earth with humanity forever and ever and ever. And because he dwells in the city of God forever and ever with the people of God, there is no such thing as death. There is no such thing as sickness. There is no such thing as grief and mourning and pain because those things are the way it is now. When the promise maker comes and makes everything right, those things will be No more. Everything that we wrestle with and struggle with will be the old way. The new way will have come. One last piece. There's lots that we could say. But in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing, flowing, from the throne of God and of the land. Remember back at the end of Joel chapter 3 how the river flowed from the throne, from the temple? Here it is. Here's the picture of it. Down the middle of the great street of the city and on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. (laughs) They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp of the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Is that good news? That's really good news. Friends, this is our glorious hope. This is our glorious hope. The story was told of a, a group of seminary students who would play basketball in a nearby elementary school because the seminary that they went to didn't have a gymnasium. So it was the closest one they could find, and they wanted to get some exercise and play some basketball, so they would, went, they would go. Every week they would go. And as they were playing, there would be an elderly janitor who would wait patiently for them to finish so he could clean the gym, and when they were done, then he would do it. But he would always wait. He had everything else done. He would just sit in there nearby while they played. Week after week, this would happen. One week, one of the seminary students noticed that he was reading something. And so he went over, and he asked what the man was reading, and the man had his Bible. He said, I'm reading the book of Revelation. Revelation. And this, janitor, or this seminary student was kind of surprised. He wasn't expecting this, this man to be reading the book of Revelation. And so he asked him, do you understand what it says? And the janitor said, oh, yes. And he asked, well, seminary student, well, what does it mean? Very quietly, but very firmly, that elderly janitor says, It means that Jesus is going to (laughs) win. It means that Jesus is going to win. Friends, this is the promise of God's story. It's the end of the story. It's how the story will end. And so no matter what is going on in the world, no matter what is going on in your life today, we know one thing. We know that Jesus is going to win. He's already told us the end of the story. And it's a promise. And so, at the end of this series, a short three week series, just have two questions really for us to to process, and then the worship team will come to lead us. And that is this first question Are you on Jesus' side? Are you on Jesus' side? You know, we we saw last week that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul affirms it. The door is wide open. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done, good or bad. The door is wide open. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, church family, I found that, you know, We can't assume that everybody who comes to church week after week after week is on Jesus' side. And the reason we can't is because it can be so easy to think that the way that I get on Jesus' side is by coming to church, is by reading my Bible, is by serving, is by being a a good person. The scriptures are clear that there is nothing in our good works that will ever be able to amount for the for the Father through Jesus to accept us. It's only through the repentance of our sin and our turning wholehearted, humbling ourselves and calling on Jesus, who is the perfect sacrifice of asking Jesus' work on the cross to count for us. And so this morning when I ask, are you on Jesus' side, I ask that question just to simply ask, have you come to the place in your life where you have said, Jesus, I'm going to turn away from anything that I can do to try to earn or deserve the forgiveness of God, the love of God, to deserve being on Jesus' side, to deserve heaven, I repent of all that self-effort and I trust you, Jesus, to be my Savior and to be my Lord. And it's good news. Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? So are you on Jesus' side? The question, second question is this. Are you living ready, if you are on Jesus' side, are you living ready for his return? This is what, in the midst of all those things, in chapter 16, all those bowls of wrath being poured out, there's this little insertion. We read it, verse 15, Revelation 16, 15. Jesus inserts, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Are we living in pursuit of Jesus? This is what it's about. Are we living for his presence? Are we living hungering and thirsty? Are we living in a place of consistently being changed and transformed to be like Christ? Friends, when was the last time that our hearts were rendered in Repentance. When was the last time that the Lord convicted us so deeply that we were on our faces before God and saying, oh God, forgive me. Not because we need to be saved again, but because he wants to give us a deeper level of his presence, a deeper level of his spirit. When, if It's been a long time. If it's been a long time, I would wonder, friends, if we are living ready, because I know And the the, the life of faith is a life of continual repentance, not because we're horrible, terrible people, because he loves us and he wants to free us of all the the bondage. We sang this morning, let the chains hit the ground. Friends, chains should be hitting the ground on a a semi-regular experience of our lives. We should be feeling more and more set free by the presence of Jesus and more and more filled with the presence of the Spirit. There's more, there's always more of him. And so living ready is saying, Lord, would you continue to do that work? Would you continue to do that work? And sometimes the people who have been in church the longest are the ones who have the hardest time having those. Because we come and we've built this culture in church that says, when you come to church and you get saved, that you're good from there on out. As Leah said, it's a place, it's a hospital. Every single one of us should have these places where we recognize we have nothing to gain We have nothing to prove. We have nothing to hide so we can be open and vulnerable and we can say before the Lord, Lord, I continue to need your transformation. I continue to need you to show me what I need to repent of so that I can be set free from myself, set free from my flesh and have more of your presence inhabiting my life and living through my life. It's part of living ready. It's part of living ready. And I guarantee you, if that is your posture, you will never be caught off guard (laughs) because you're always ready for him. Because you're always seeking him, pursuing him, walking with him. So may the Lord do that work in us deeper and deeper and deeper. And all of it. With great hope and with great promise. Because our God tells us what he's going to do. And then he will do it. So as the worship team comes, I want to just close us in prayer and... You know, the altar would be open during this time. We pray and we offer it often if you want prayer over anything. I want to just give two options for prayer. One, just if before, you, if you would say, you know what, I'm not sure fully I'm on Jesus' side. I just want to lead you in a, in a short opportunity to receive Jesus as Savior. It's not a magic formula. You know, sometimes we celebrate a, a sinner's prayer. There is no sinner's prayer in the Bible. I know that might shock, shock you. There's no sinner's prayer in the Bible. But there is a heart attitude before the Lord. And that sinner's prayer is just a way to be able to kind of put those things there. But it's ultimately about, Lord, I am broken and desperate and I need you and I can't save myself. And Jesus, you've done the work. I need you. Would you save me? Would you let your work count for me? And would you lead my life? So pray for that and then. If you're just saying, Lord, continue to do the deep work in me. I want to live ready. So let's pray. Let's pray. So Father, I thank you that you do tell us what you're going to do. And as a promise maker and promise keeper, that you always do it and you will do it. So these things in Joel, these things in Revelation, we look at them, they can be a little unsettling. They can, they can cause us uh, some confusion at times. But Father... I thank you for what you are telling us, for the blessing that comes when we know the end of the story. And so, Father, I pray for any this morning who may say, I'm not sure I'm on Jesus' side. Oh, but how I want to be. Father, I pray that you would pour out your grace like rain upon them and grant grant them faith to believe. So if it is your heart's cry, whether here or watching or listening, doesn't have to be a magic formula. It doesn't even have to be exactly what I say, but it's your heart attitude before Jesus. Maybe something like this. So Lord Jesus, I admit, and I confess, that I've fallen way short of perfection. There's sins I've committed by action, by what I shouldn't do, that I didn't, by my thoughts. I acknowledge my life is broken. And I acknowledge, Jesus, that you are the only Savior. I believe by faith that your death on the cross, your blood shed on the cross, and your resurrection. Have paid the price that I deserve for my sin. So by faith I receive that. And I ask that you would make me yours. I ask that you would make me new. That you would bring what is dead in me alive spiritually for the first time. I confess that you are Savior and you are Lord. And I desire you to be my Savior and my Lord. Lead my life, I pray. And for everyone else, Lord, would you just pour out hunger upon us? Thank you for what you're doing in our lives and in our church family. Would you do it in even greater ways? Would you bring us to those places of heart-rending repentance so that we might Know more of your presence. We might be l- filled less of our with ourselves.